0: Call
1: house. Look at all of that.
2: The Bruce Wayne McQueen. Remember all the bats in here, are your
0: friends.
3: This is Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosferatu Podcast, your unofficially official Nosferatu after show. I'm Mike Caputo.
1: And I'm Anna Hoagie. It's over, Bats. It's all over.
3: No, no say it's not so.
1: <laughs> not ready to say goodbye. I know. But I don't know if it really is a goodbye. I mean, fingers
3: crossed, right?
1: I know. So guys, episode ten, Bats, our season two finale. Is written by showrunner extraordinaire Jamie O'Brien and is the second in the two-episode block directed by Toa Fraser, who also directed last week's episode nine, "Welcome to Christmas Land."
3: You know, I like that because this was a real continuation, or especially the first part of this episode is a real continuation of episode nine. Yeah, uh, I think when after you you may not realize when you're watching "Welcome to Christmas Land," you're really watching the first part of a two-part season finale because episode nine and the beginning of this episode is all the action. And then the back end of this episode is the epilogue. It's the wrap up and, you know, which is serving a couple of different purposes, Uh, unfortunately, and scarily it's, you know, it's, it's serving as a, all right, here's where we all wound up. But then on the optimistic side, the, the optimistic season three side, it also sets up where we could go next for a bunch of the characters. Doing a season finale, doing a finale of a show when you don't know if you're going to be back for another season is a terrifying thing. Oh my god! Because to, you, ha- yeah. you have to you have to serve so many masters, you know. Yeah. You, you know you have to you have to cross so many t's and dot so many i's. Uh, I give Jamie and her writing crew and, and you know and Toa so much credit for what they've done here and accomplished in these in these last couple episodes of bringing this bringing this story to an end, bringing the Charlie Menks story to an end and also giving us a glimpse of what we could expect in the future if we're so lucky to you know be given that green light so
1: yeah i mean it's it's just so well done in that manner that you know i think back to so many shows where they're in the same position and that last episode just just didn't do it and then it ended up you know the show didn't come back and you know it just sort of leaves this sort of weird legacy in a way and i feel like you know if by some horrible reason we did not get renewed for a season three this really does package things up and you know tie up loose ends and still also leaves a a twinge of mystery for your imagination later so yeah bravo well done on on that on putting this together
3: speaking of uh jamie and her team uh and and just the the strong creative energy that is behind the camera as well as in front of the camera on the show. When we're done talking about episode 10 tonight, definitely stick around because we have a great Far-ranging, in-depth interview with the showrunner extraordinaire, the head strong creative herself, Jamie O'Brien. She has come back to book. She comes back to bookend our season. She kicked off our season two premiere episode with our with an interview, and she gives us another double-length interview tonight.
1: Yeah, stick around, guys. It's a really great interview. She spent a lot of time with us. Really gracious. Um, You know, again, it's an honor to have her on here talking about the show and and you know we even got to ask some some more really fun questions um so definitely come back for that
3: i want to definitely get into the wrap up portion of the season and and knock on wood the uh, not the end of the series but at least on the season and i want to talk to you about where the characters end up and if you're happy with where their journeys took them but i want to do it at the end uh, so let's put that at the back end. So let's jump right so we can jump right into the episode.
1: Woo-hoo. <laughs> so,
3: you know, I, like I said, tonight really picks up where Welcome to Christmas Land left off. It's time to get the fuck out of Dodge. We have to get Wayne out and, and try and save his soul. We have to get Maggie out, who is not looking good. You were on set for some of this episode. I don't know if you were on set for 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 these scenes, but seeing it on the screen, I, I know you had the script at some point. Uh, you you got to read a little bit, so you knew what was coming. But
2: yeah, <laughs> yeah. So
3: so I said so, yeah, you could say that finally. But so seeing it play out though on screen, did it match what your anticipation of what would happen would be?
1: It was better than my anticipation because, you know, I'm seeing certain things in my mind and, you know, after reading the book and race and you have a certain expectation. But but honestly, that last showdown, you know, on the shorter way, once we get there, that was even more incredible than I I pictured it in my mind when when, you know, I, I was I was reading what was going to happen. So I didn't get to see any of the Christmas land scenes being filmed. Um, So I got to see more of um, the scenes in the ornament forest with, uh, you know, where Lou and Tabitha and Wayne are are sort of trying to figure out what's going on with him. So, uh, and then also some scenes later on with, with Millie and Wayne.
3: Let's talk about the ornament forest because it was great. It was great having Lou put together Maggie's, tiles i mean you know she's not there to figure out what you know uh when the souls when the souls fall means and but he does and and is it he is it him that does it yeah
1: because he yeah it is the horcrux from harry potter (laughs) right which
3: is so great that they named out that because but then it's tabitha who starts like smashing shit And the two of them kind of really hop on the train this is a great part of the book that i really enjoyed and i was you know Things get changed around, and and the while the show has always done a great job of keeping the soul of the book intact, it's not been a straight one for one adaptation. So I was curious what, how they were going to bring this concept in of the Horcruxes being destroyed uh, yeah. and the ki- and the kids returning. And I thought they did a great job with it. Uh, talk to us about since you mentioned it. Talk to us about what it was like to be on set watching this get filmed, especially as a, especially as a fan of the book and and kind of putting it together what what they're doing here.
1: It was really kind of fun because, you know, I got to see sort of how they piece these bits of the scenes together and to sort of uh, the time that it takes. It's very time consuming just for these small little scenes. And, you know, I got to see Ashley Ruman's kicking ass as, as Hutter, you know, bashing the ornaments over and over again with this, you know, with her prop gun and smashing them on the ground and getting different shots. I think the best part was actually the scene where Wayne has to puke up his teeth and, um, you know, so they're they're trying to get different shots of of the puke, and there was even I think at one point somebody yelled "puke harness," and I don't even know what that is, but it was one of the funniest things I heard all day.
3: You mean you mean other than the name of my next hard rock band, Puke <laughs> yeah. Harness? Stay tuned yes, for our album yes. dropping next fall. <laughs> puke Harness coming at you, where we do romantic <laughs> cover ballads on the eighties. You know. Say I, you, say me, I, say it together. <laughs> Naturally no. ah! Yeah. harness coming at it.
1: Yeah, pucarnus. I, I I can see the, the album cover in my head and everything. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a blast seeing them them do all this and, and I really still didn't have it in my head sort of how it would all fit fit together because there's a lot of time in between the different scenes. I just loved being able to see all of this in front of me on the TV now after I was there in person and seeing the detail and everything that, you know, it's all culminated to this. So, you know, I'm sort I'm still excited beyond words, basically, that I that I got to be there. I just love the whole idea of these the souls trapped in the ornaments, um, in the first place because it reminds me of something that I think people who are maybe live down south a little further might know about something called bottle trees. And you'll see people with these brightly colored, different colored bottles hanging in their trees, in their yard, all around the yard. Sometimes you'll see people that have like these bright, shiny jugs sitting out like all around their house. And that is 100% the belief that bad spirits will be attracted to these objects and get trapped inside of them. And so you hang bottles on your trees in order to keep evil spirits from getting to your house because they get distracted first and end up in the bottles. So that's just a nice little reflection on on a real belief, a real cultural uh, belief that that's you know sort of think it's a little dying out now but you still see it you still kind of see it if you drive down south a bit
3: i love that because this was this was almost the opposite of that right it was it was literally the it was the literally the last goodness of these children that gets trapped in the ornaments yeah in the, in the metaphorical bottles on the trees the horcrux analogy that Lou comes up with is really super dead on it the is. idea that it's a piece of your soul that is necessary to, to reconnect you and make you a whole person again, it could not be more clearly explained without doing a lot of explaining. I think that just the, the way the show demonstrated the idea was so clean when the kids start popping back in through the forest and they're normal again. Yeah. And, and, and when you compare it against Millie, who is still her, her ghoul self and still holding her cat ornament, the juxtaposition was so nicely done and executed that it's one of those scenes where it's a complex idea that they're explaining but it's so simple once you see them explain it you know what i mean uh, oh totally yeah they could have made they could have made it really complicated and and a lot of viewers were scratching their heads like what's happening where how come the kids look normal but I, yeah. I thought laying the clue with maggie's tiles and now demonstrating how it goes in practice was just a really nice way to tie it all together for people who hadn't read the book or were just kind of confused about what they were seeing. It was a really simplistic, elegant design to do it that way.
1: Very much so. What did what did you think of like Millie's expression as she was standing there watching and holding her ornament? I mean, I almost like, was wondering if she was going to start running at him or something. She looked really pissed.
3: There's a scene in Anchorman where Ron Burgundy jumps into the bear pit.
1: Oh and, yeah! Oh yeah! And yeah. he
3: lands in the bear put and then he looks up and he says, "I immediately regret this decision." That was Billy, yes. entirely <laughs> for me. She crossed through. She, she gets a hold of her ornaments, so she stays, like, so she doesn't disappear, and she immediately has buyer's regret. Yep. She, you know, and, and I think that's what it is. I think she got cold feet, but had already committed to the thing. She'd already betrayed her father. She had already left Christmasland. She had gone too far to turn back, but I think she wanted nothing more than to turn back. And uh, Byers, I, I when we talk to Jamie, you, you'll you'll hear me ask if Millie had Byers' remorse. I think she did. I think she absolutely got cold feet at the prospect of looking normal again, of being normal again. I think it terrified her.
1: Definitely, and
3: and, and I think it translates into a little bit of anger that these kids all look normal. Like she's pissed that they're doing what she thought she wanted. But at the same time, she also realizes maybe it's really not what she wants.
1: But did she really have a choice at the same time? Because if her dad was going to die, she was going to die. All the other kids were going to die. In a way, I mean, I don't see where she really had a choice but to cross over at that point. If, you know, she wanted to continue to exist. Now she's left with the choice whether or not she wants to stay Millie Banks' Demon Girl or – become Millicent again the little human girl and go on with her life so you know it's almost like I think she's bitter because she really didn't have a choice either but now she's also left kind of all alone all of her friends are now returned to normal and they're gonna go away and she doesn't have any of her friends either
3: yeah, let, let's stay with Millie, though, for a second, because the rest of the episode really plays out with her vis-a-vis Wayne, right? Because right. Wayne Wayne keeps getting drawn to, to the sleigh house and to the ornament forest, because he, he still has a draw to Christmasland, to the idea of it, and, and to Millie. And you can see that she hasn't lost all hope, right? Because when they're laying there, and it's so cute where they're like, both of them like laying up in a star. I absolutely, maybe one of my favorite scenes in this episode. The I got to
1: see that part. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh,
1: I know. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh,
3: but when she's, when she's asking him, you know, like, what about the, you go see the Great Wall and grow up? Like she she's testing out on him, all of these theories that, her human counterpart in the House of Fear talked about, you know, about growing up and getting out of the house and seeing the world. And, and kind of like Crackleface Cassie was kind of promising her the ability to grow up and and, and grow into a woman like, like her mother. She's kind of testing all these ideas out on Wayne, on human Wayne. And he's not really giving the best answers that she's looking for. He's no. giving answers- He's giving answers like I think every kid who has overworked parents gives. Like, no, my kid my parents are fucking miserable all the time. They work, they go home, they bitch, they fight, they complain, because that's a lot of what kids see, right? They see a lot, they see the stress that adults are under. So of course that's what he's relating to her. But man, what a cold shower for Millie. You could see she's got like a little lifeline vest that she's trying to get Wayne to toss to her. And like, you know, make me believe I didn't make a huge giant mistake here. And he really kind of shuts it down. And I, and I think his responses are a big determining factor in her going on the track of, I want to recreate Christmasland.
1: Oh, 100%. And And also just... I think she knows that she is strong and and misses that power that she, you know, had in Christmas land. She misses that authority because she's been running the place for like eight years or so. Yeah. You know, so, but, and now she's, you know, like she said, she's all alone and she doesn't want to be human because then she'd just be, you know, ordinary and
3: ordinary, yeah. Yeah,
1: weak and ordinary. So I, I I kinda like feel for her in a way. It she kinda had a a, a shit sandwich on e- either side no matter which choice that, you know, she decided to go with. And, you know, Wayne is definitely definitely not ha- helping at all. So Yeah. I do I do love how she asked him though to help her build Christmas land again. That's kinda like a weird little little thing that's kind of stuck in my head now.
3: To me, uh besides the Maggie stuff, which I think is is a spin-off series if nothing else all on its own, I think the idea of the this little queen and her little king trying to build a new dominion to rule over is a genius idea for season 3. Yeah. You know, it, it allows you to keep a bunch of the core cast in the show. But it really shifts the focus to this new generation. You know, kind of like Degrassi High, the next generation. Exactly. You know, exactly. it's Christmasland. You know? <laughs> Christmasland 2.0, bitch! You know, and yeah, it's funny. You make such a great point because she was a queen. She was a kid queen in Christmasland. And now she's just an ordinary kid. You know, in the real world, we don't let kids rule kingdoms. You know, no. we don't unless you're doing a, like a lord of the flies reenactment <laughs> we we don't allow kid rulers anymore in this world uh that's a very like you know medieval like french concept to let little little uh kings be on the throne or queens be on the throne yeah so if you're one of those people who makes a pros and cons list before you make every decision now that she's here her con list is all folded up on being in the real world
1: oh not to mention just the fact that she has to basically hunt and kill wild animals to eat now so you know we got to we got to see the deer like the half-eaten deer on the ground which you know is something that I had paraded by me you know like a few inches from my face and it was so amazing because uh you know it it was just all open and gory and gross and wonderful <laughs> at the same time and it was also fun on because there's you know definitely parts of the scenes that get cut so you know there's like she was biting into the the deer or the rabbit and it was like growling you know making growling sounds and everything which is just so funny because it's just fun to see how into it Matea gets you know
3: she plays feral very well she yeah. plays feral, feral animal like a real pro but if you sure.
1: really want to get surreal we had the dinner break pretty much in the middle of of these scenes. And so I'm sitting in this big camp hall eating dinner and there's little Millie Manx in full costume, little Wayne in full like demon costume. She's got like the blood all over her face and they're running around with ice cream. (laughs) And it I was just that. so bizarre and so funny because I mean they're completely full out outfit, hair, makeup, everything. It was these little the characters running around the dining hall for ice cream and cookies and just being kids and being adorable. So it's, it's, it was kind of fun to see see them, you know, having a good time together, you know, because it, you, they do have a, a, a kind of an adorable chemistry together on on screen as well.
3: They really do, and you can you can really see where the Two of them working together, whether Wayne is openly working with her or just kind of under the radar working with her, the two of them trying to rebuild a Christmas land is so chock full of promise and (laughs) and wonder. Like it really makes me excited for the next season if that was gonna be a thrust of the of the arc, if if that was going to be a mainline storyline, I'd be really really into that. I'm glad you brought up the deer though, being paraded by you though, because when we spoke to prop master extraordinaire Joshua Meltzer for last week's episode, we actually asked him about this, and so we're going to cut in our questions uh, that we've been holding on to since then uh, about that deer right bonus,
1: now. Bonus. Bonus. So I have another question from my visit to the set that day, and this is obviously going to be something that, uh, people don't see until tonight's episode, episode 10, we have a deer that Millie eats and I was just standing, I think outside of one of the tents and somebody just walked in I'm guessing it's Heidi walked by me very closely with this like half eaten baby deer. and. Because, you know, I was sort of in the wilderness, on this farm, in this location, and somebody's walking by me with a dead animal. I didn't really think at first that it, it was, wasn't real. It looked real. It, it, I mean, the fur, everything. And, well, I mean, how do you even go about creating something like that that then somebody has to then eat, <laughs> basically, put their mouth into? It was
0: incredible. Uh, the deer itself was real. Uh, it was a, a taxidermied animal oh. that um, I rented whoa. and um, I created a a safe space for, for the actor, for Millie to put her, her mouth so that she could, she could eat. <sighs> and I'm oh trying God. to remember, I think we, I think we used chicken. Oh, I, I think we used, we used chicken with uh, some uh, some fake blood sauce that I, that we made up uh, on top of it. But um, yeah, so it it was, it was a real deer. And so it, we sold that it was a real deer. And then in the very tight shot, again, what I was talking about before we showed the audience that it's a real deer. So now they know it's a real deer. So then in a tight shot, you know, we can move stuff around a little bit to create a big space for her face to go. And the audience will be, along the along on the ride with us definitely so that that's the part of being a visual storyteller I really yeah love.
1: and she sells it too she's like all graveling and everything yeah what is what does blood sauce taste like
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's usually sweet um i would hope so you know um, all our all our all our blood recipes for the most part are generally some sort of syrup based
3: Maybe the children of Christmas Lamb wouldn't be so into blood if it didn't taste I know. so good. I feel like this might be a chicken or the egg kind of thing. You <laughs> like know? The yeah,
0: they're probably all on, they're all on a sugar high.
3: <laughs> yeah, a bunch of diabetic ghouls running around. Pretty so much. That's <laughs> a problem. Oh, damn it. Well, the, oh my God. The, the American Dentist Association is be after <laughs> you guys. It's not cool. Again, big thank you to Josh for uh man he just spoke to us for so long and just answered all of our questions and again i I could have i could have stayed there for a very long time just asking him about all sorts of manner of noseratu things and his long extraordinary career which is just fantastic uh yeah so big big thank you to josh for coming and talking with us and spending so much time just letting us you know behind the scenes a little bit into what his world is like which is fantastic So after Vic successfully saves Wayne from Christmas land and she basically tosses Wayne to Lou and and heads right back, you know, across the shorter way to go rescue Maggie. Let's set aside the fact that you actually knew what was going to happen. (laughs) Watching it, it, uh, for me anyway, there is a real possibility here that Maggie doesn't make it right. This is a season finale. We don't know if there's a season three. Jakara is this larger than life presence. So it would be an epic death. I really wasn't 100% positive that she makes it out of the series alive or the season alive tonight and not positive that she makes it out of the scene alive. Uh, what was it like for you to watch the the kind of tension of her being rescued and then the that standoff in the shorter way?
1: Oh, my gosh. Again, it was just sort of. A lot larger than I pictured it. It was a lot more intense than I pictured it. The effects were incredible. Uh, just that build up of the bats swarming, and then the the, the build up of the, the the bridge itself just just rumbling, and and you know basically almost trying to implode on Charlie. It was so exciting. I loved seeing Zachary Quinto at full on like curmudgeon manx and the and the stuff that he was yelling was cracking me up. Um, I was yeah. like yelling, "Miserable harpies,
3: miserable harpies!"
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and the bridge, yes, yes, it was awesome. And just yeah. being like all pissed off at the bats. Um, I loved just the whole moment when when Maggie grabs Vic's hand, or or they grab each other's hand, and and she sort of reminds her, you're the one that's going to beat Manx. You're the one that's going to do this. My tiles are never wrong, you know. You're the one that they said could do this. So it was great to see the strength of them sort of coming together in that moment. When, you know, the car went into the static, I wasn't sure, basically, if that was going to be an open door or not, because I didn't have the entire script for the episode I had like parts of nine parts of ten and so I I I wasn't aware really where they were going to take it from here you know once those bats kind of come back up out of that hole and the whole thing collapses yeah I wasn't really sure I almost had a feeling like could he still be alive somehow somewhere In an inscape or in the static, you know, lost in the static. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it just just left me with, like, a little bit of, like, tinge of wonder. Like, what was going to happen? Where did he go? (laughs) It was cool. It was really cool.
3: It happened so early on in the episode. And it was such a, like, it was one of those scenes where your pulse is definitely elevated. Because he's literally chasing them into the shorter way. And it's really funny. Because the triumph with two people on it. And the Wraith generally are not fast, fast uh, vehicles. No. And so it, it had a real slow speed chase feel to it. But it was also very intense at the same time. And any th- time something other than Vic by herself is in the shorter way, it gives me some palpitations. Even when she's carrying yeah. someone, yeah. it makes me it makes me a little anxious. It was enough that she had Maggie with her, but the seeing the Wraith, it was almost obscene to me to, oh, yeah. to see the wraith befoul her inscape this way. Yeah. to to be there, it was like a germ invading a body. Yes,
1: soiling, yeah. soiling her space, her her beautiful inscape. Oh yeah, definitely. And, it just it, invasive and and yes, that's yeah. the word
3: invasive. And, yeah. and and in the same way that you know white blood cells will rush to an infection. I loved, 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 and maybe my favorite part of this set piece were the bats because yeah, they come, yeah. she psychically brings them to her defense. When they start smashing themselves into the windshield of the Wraith, the Wraith that has been basically indestructible is getting ripped to fucking shreds by these bats. Because all he fantastic. is is
1: an old bitch in her inscape. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that.
3: Yeah.
1: Oh, but here, okay, true confessions. I don't know why this got to me. When Vic was riding Wayne out of the shorter way and he notices the bats, that line that she says to him, oh my God, it just like immediately brought tears to my eyes when she says, you know, you're Bruce Wayne McQueen, remember? All the bats in here are your friends. And it just like was the best sentence in that moment. It was so heroic. It was so beautiful. He, you know, was sort of filled with wonder and it got me, it got me misty. I got a, kind of, kind of teary about it. I still do. It just affected me. That one line, that one moment, just, uh, it might've been the favorite, my favorite moment of the whole episode, honestly.
3: It was a, such a genuine moment. There there have been a couple of times this season where you and I have pointed out a, a truly memorable yeah. mother-son bo- moment between... Wayne and Vic between Ashley Cummings and Jason David who have such great mom, son chemistry. It was a great line from her and delivered so pitch perfectly, but he did, he really did have this wonder about him. It was a beautiful moment. Yeah. I'm getting misty again. Stop. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, but yeah. So let's bring it back to the action. I, I, again, I'm glad you brought this up. The idea of Maggie Really bringing it back all the way to season one. And the reason that yeah. she sought out the brat to begin with was because the Tiles knew that she was the one to defeat the Wraith. Uh, and, and by extension, Charlie. It was such a nice bookend to that moment that Maggie was there with her taking on this final this final battle. This is the final boss battle. You know, last week was, <laughs> yeah. it was the mini final boss battle. This is the big boss battle. And Maggie is there by her side. But at the same time, it's Vic that has to do it. And and Vic takes a stand there, and I love all of her reasons because if she lets him go all the way through the shorter way, she's just leading him to the person that they all love. You're you're playing right into his hands. You know the I, the thing with Charlie Manx is you always have to get him rocked back on his heels. Taking the fight to Christmasland looks awesome, but that is that motherfucker's like home field advantage to the nth degree. Just you a need the. Yeah, you need to, as is the sleigh house and the ornament forest. These are these are his places of strength. It would be like going back to Parnassus, like that's and, where, and,
1: yeah. And that they've been there for decades. He's been building them, fortifying them. You know, who knows what kind of insane shit is you know lurking in there that we didn't see or or even think about because exactly he's been he's been building it for so long and, and it's his playground
3: 100%. right right and he knows he knows all of the ins and outs so if you're vic and you are thinking clearly like you know if you're playing chess when everyone else is playing checkers taking the final battle into your inscape into where you're strongest as a strong creative it's the only place that really makes sense and so narratively it is genius that that's that this is where it happens, and i'm so ha I, I loved how it did, but like you at that moment in the episode, I was like there's no way he's actually fucking dead we're we're going right. to see him again,
1: yeah, right,
3: <laughs> but again, but later on, we do yeah. see him, and he is a nasty mess, and then we're told he's cremated. I feel like the show satisfied our rule, our genre rule, that you have to see a body in order to call it dead. So him in the river, combined with Tabitha saying he was cremated, really puts the nail in the Charlie Minks coffin for me. Not that we can't see him again. Not that there won't be a House of Fear-like thing if Millie was to rebuild Christmas land. Yeah. A form of Charlie exists there. But this Charlie Minks, this earthly ghoul vampire soul-sucking creature charlie manx i believe is truly dead how about you
1: bye motherfucker
3: yeah gone
1: i think so I love the idea that you just brought up, though, of of him still existing somehow and 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 being able to 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 come back and play that character if if so required, you know, in in Millie's new inscape, if that's what happens, um, you know, I think that would be kind of kind of cool, be a neat way of, of bringing him back, just like they brought Craig back, you know, we had no idea, that was totally unexpected. It
0: really was unexpected. It really was. Who, knows, really who was. knows,
1: like what these brilliant genius writers could have possibly have in store um you know I'm Let, excited. let's talk let's, let's see
3: let's talk because i love putting on the inside baseball like actual how tv works production hat uh idea it makes sense for the charlie manx story to be over because i am sure zachary quinto is an expensive part of production of Seratu because of his salary because he's an a-list celebrity who costs probably a lot of money To have on the show. And so the idea of him, his main story being run and done, I think helps the idea of continuing on because it makes the show cheaper to make a season three without his his price tag. And you could probably more afford him to come back in a recurring or a guest star role as something to do tied in with Millie's new version of Christmas Land than having him being a series regular. So that's my TV side, how TV is produced kind of hat theory on why it makes sense for Charlie's main story to be done and, sure. and, and like another ghost version or some other version of him to, uh, to appear periodically next season. So. Right, right. Let's talk about the Wraith, though, because this is the other part of the Charlie oh, yeah. story is the Wraith. Oh, yeah. the, the Wraith, which which seems almost as indestructible as Charlie, we watch get crushed. And I don't know about you, but when the door pops open, almost like a last gasp before a person takes their last breath, that door popping open to almost call to Wayne. And you, yeah. you'll notice he kind of takes a step yeah. towards it. It's really subtle, but it was so well done, and and it made the hair on my arm stand up. When the door pops open, and he kind of of is drawn to
1: it. He makes a little sound, too. He does, yeah. Yeah,
3: he makes – he he kind of whimpers. He kind of whimpers, and and Vic is – Vic is aware. Vic brings him into kind of a over the shoulder two-hand hug restraining move that parents will do to keep their kids, you know, like next to them without moving. Like she kind of holds him in place because I yeah. think she senses uh-huh. she senses the pull of it. That back seat is is a huge lore for him and that door popping open as the crusher goes down on it. Because we saw the car in a crusher just two episodes ago, we saw that door pop open and Wayne getting in it voluntarily or oh, kind of semi voluntarily with no you know, su-
1: with no shoes.
3: Well, no shoes. <laughs> yeah, this time he has shoes. But yeah, it was it was really it was just it was a great subtle little head nod to yeah the story's over, but it's not really. Wayne is forever changed, if nothing else. Let's talk about Wayne. How damaged is Wayne? Will Wayne ever be, quote unquote, normal, do you think?
1: Oh, man. uh, Some of the scenes were really hard to watch. I mean, especially when he's at dinner and in in one hand he's trying to hide the tater tots and the other hand he's got the fork because he's suddenly kind of feeling a little stabby. And I don't think that that's anything that he's he's. Able to control right now, so I would say pretty no, damn damaged. No. If he's still having these somewhat unconscious violent urges, that says everything right there. You know, forget the sugar, forget staying up late, forget sneaking out with Millie. It's it's that that edge that really kind of frightens me, and I don't even know if Vic really realizes it. Because you know she's she's very good with him at this point. You know you can you can see how she's grown and and how she's she's handling him much differently. She's not hiding things from him. She's also telling him how she's feeling, and that in turn is helping to get out. You know what might
3: be going on with
1: him. But yeah, well, I don't even think on he realizes it. Yeah.
3: No, I I don't. I I agree with you. I don't think he really understands and I think when she finally changes tactics after she talks to Linda yes. and and she, and she adopts this open policy of let's just be truthful with each, with each other. I yes. think that's the I think that's the first healing the both of them have really done since this whole thing oh started God. because the stabby as fuck moment at the table, she matches his rage with her own rage and that's not productive for anyone at all. And you see it. It only escalates the situation. And Lou exactly. is kind of... He's kind of impotent to get Because he doesn't know how to control these two people. Mm-mm. You know? You you can't control Vic's rage. And Wayne is... It's like he's got puberty all at once. And it's all the bad parts of puberty have hit him all at once. And he is stabby as fuck. You're 100% right. Lou doesn't know what to do. It, it is a dangerous moment for the Team McCarmody family. It's a really sad moment. But... Later on, when you see her confront him and he tries to hide the drawing and she draws him out and she asks him questions and she keeps her shit together. I think that's the first real moment of healing for those two, which makes I love me it. hopeful yeah. for the future. But at the same time, he is still like kind of like digging Millie and digging Millie's vibe and digging her like, you know, Christmas Land 2.0 vibe also. So Wayne is in a real tough spot. It's a real battle for his soul as I think as we go into season three. I think that's the showdown is do I choose my mother or do I choose my, you know, little girl lover, my queen, as it were. And that's the struggle for Wayne, I think, in a season three. Right. That's that's where he's going to be pulled
1: i I would I would assume so. Yeah, because he he really is still he's skirting both worlds and you know, once you get a taste of Christmas land, man, I think that it I think it probably sticks with you for a while. But also on top of that, is he sort of starting to have visions like Vic? Did we see him like having flashes, like visions when he was going to sleep? Because that seemed like exactly what happened to Vic when she was starting to come into her powers and things. Um, Do you think? Could it be? Do you think he's a strong creative?
3: (laughs) I mean, I personally personally think he is. I think he is manifesting all of the signs. But when we asked Jamie O'Brien about this. She gave a she gave the exact answer someone who wants you to watch a season three of the show would say, and she says, "I think you have to tune in next season to to learn the answer to that question." <laughs> God damn it, Jamie! <sighs> just tell us now. She's I want it now.
1: She's planting the seeds, though. Call me
3: Veruca Salt. I want it now.
1: I want it now.
3: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no. I think I think all the signs are there. He just interacted with. Charlie with Christmasland. I think the reason Millie treats him almost like an equal and whereas she had where she had dominion and and really would just boss bitch all of the other kids at Christmasland around. She doesn't treat Wayne that way. She, She treats him with a little bit more respect and as an equal, as an equal, as much as kids can treat others as equals. You know, like I see you as the same as me. I think all of those signs point to him being special in some way. Now, is he a strong creative like his mother and like Charlie Manx or some other power that has yet to really manifest itself? Who knows? But I think it's undeniable that there is something very special about him.
1: I definitely do. I think think we're going to have a sort of like budding strong creative that comes out of some kind of conflict something's going to happen something's going to bring it out of him at some point and i think you're right i think millie senses that too because i honestly i mean think millie might have something going on too how how else is she going to rebuild christmas land
3: i mean she's gonna have to create an inscape right it's interesting when you think about millie i think you have to kind of think about charlie's backstory and how he began to build christmas land uh, and if if you follow down that road, you imagine that she's going to have to have some kind of violent killings in her near future if she's going to start working on it, which does not spell a great end potentially for the lovers at Slayhouse House at the end of the episode when when the scene when the show ends <laughs> on her punching through yes. the windshield. That's her Mr. Tim. That's her mom moment, maybe, potentially, where we're going to see Static hit her eyes as she goes to Crunchtown on those two. Yeah, I, it's really interesting to see. But also, remember, Christmas Land really got going uh, as an adult when Charlie Manx had a daughter and really got her on board with the idea of Christmas Land. So Millie as a human was extremely influential and important, I think, to Charlie really creating a Christmas land that he could finally visit. I think without Millie's participation and enthusiasm, I don't know that he finally gets to take that drive in the wraith to, you know, down the St. Nick parkway to the gates of Christmasland, where we have that great, scene earlier in the yeah. season where the two of them walk in for the first time together
1: I like I, that take I like that because they were imagining it together they were, they were coming up with the ideas together they were talking about where the rides were going to go and what animals would do what and I mean they, they were planning this whole thing right from the when, point when she was a little girl because
3: when, you know? when Charlie's a kid he's just talking about now he wants to fly out of this world he doesn't have a specific place in mind that he voices anyway. I mean, we see the demon snowman. We, we, we know he's (laughs) obsessed with the sleigh. So it's, it's It's not hard to imagine that he's pointing towards a Christmas land like place, but it's only when he is a young father, that him and his daughter really hatched a plan together. Like you said, they're talking about the rides and, and they're editing it, right? Because she changes the position of where one yeah. of the tanks are going to be. And he's like, oh, we're moving that around. We had already talked about it. like like they were really designing this fucking place. They exactly. Were doing it. They were yeah. doing it together. They built Christmas land together. Like we always associate it in credit as a Charlie Meng's creation. But I think that's a little nearsighted. I think setting up Millie for a season three story, I think you have to take a step back. Rewatch season two from an eye of Millie was very important to the creation of Christmasland, but yeah. maybe needs a partner in crime like she was to Charlie. Maybe she needs a Wayne to, you know, she's the, maybe Wayne is the Millie in her Christmasland 2.0 build. Someone to bounce ideas off, someone to yeah. harness, harness their energy with. I love that idea. That's my take anyway. And just going back to the strong creative line, and I I highly recommend to everyone, go back through season two. I know you're all going to fucking watch it again. Go back through season two. Watch for the signs. All of the signs. uh, There are so many signs dropped throughout the show. The show is so smart. It's dropping clues all season long about the fact that Wayne may have powers. Rewatch it from the eye of, did Wayne make that happen? Is Wayne manifesting that? And I think you're going to see a lot of times there are signs there that it's Wayne manifesting early powers, just like his mother did in the book. Remember, in the story, in the TV show, Vic is 18 when when her powers manifest. And Jamie will bring that up in the interview. She talks about it. When I asked this question, she went to, you know, Vic being like 18 when her powers manifested. Yeah, she
1: specifically said 18 when she (laughs) manifested. She did. She
3: did. But in the book, Vic is 8, which is the same age as Wayne is now. In the book, she's 8 when she begins to manifest her powers. And I don't think that is a coincidence. I don't think that's a coincidence at all. I think that is a really important detail that I'm laying down my $1 bet here becomes part of the story of season three and this exploration of Wayne and, and what he can or cannot do.
1: Well, speaking of Vic, how did you feel about her basically like hanging up the strong creative towel, putting the triumph in storage and living in the quote unquote real world, you know, with her family at this point? I mean, good for her for not drinking. That's, that's awesome. But what did you think about her just sort of giving up Being a strong creative in that way and no more, no more inscape, no more knife.
3: It's really hard to work through, right? Because there are pluses and minuses to it. It's easy to see where she needs to be a mom and she needs to be a wife and she needs to be herself. She needs, she needs to live a normal life. You know, Maggie got eight years with Tabitha living a straight, normal, non-magic filled life. And maybe Maggie is restless with that now. Maggie is restless with that now and wants to <laughs> She wants to explore. But Vic never had that peace. For the eight years that she didn't have uh, her knife and so she couldn't use magic, she was still not at peace because Charlie Minx was still out there. The danger was still out there. There was no closure or healing for her in those eight years. Now she has a chance to finally have closure and to live a truly normal life. She was never her best self in those eight years with Lou and Mm. Wayne raising Wayne. Now she has an opportunity to be. And in order to help Wayne's healing, you can see where she feels like she needs to be that. If she is going to be using her knife and running off, it's all too much temptation when she feels like Wayne needs her there and needs her to be a mom, not a magic mom, just a mom who is understanding and caring and, and empathetic. So I see all that, but, but, there is a large part of me that really identifies with the with the hard sell that Maggie's giving her. It's the hourglass man's theory, right? Yeah, are, use your gift. We are blessed with these powers. Why should we have to take a back seat to using them to make people who don't have the powers happy? That's a really yeah. strong argument that, that I see the attractiveness of that. But I think if I have to decide, I agree with her decision to hang it up for now
1: it It's definitely like something I can relate to and 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 it's a conflict because she's had to overcome alcoholism and then she also has the the constant desire to you know run away like jump on her bike whenever something isn't going right so she's she's sort of got an escapist you know vibe to her and and that's how she she reacts to things and So now she is sort of being forced in a way, but also you can see that she really wants to now be there and and help Wayne get through basically the the same, almost the same trauma that she's been through. So I think it's almost like a new bond in a way that they're forming through this horrible experience, and they're both confessing to each other, you know, she's confessed how she fucked up, he confesses how, you know, he really doesn't feel right, he's aware that he doesn't feel right, and what a great, you know, step that is for both of them, so I think it's kind of beautiful the way that that they sort of tell the story in this regard, and I I loved um, how yeah, she's a strong creative but she's she also still is an artist too and she's able to pour herself into you know her artwork still and right. also there's a great easter egg in that scene where she's doing the hero robot that she was drawing uh to mm-hmm. protect Wayne um yeah. that is artwork by Gabriel Rodriguez who also, has done illustrations for uh, Joe Hill's Nosferatu Universe, um, and is the illustrator of Lock and Key. I think he designed the cover
3: of Yes, right. He? he
1: is the yeah, cover. It, He's that original it, cover.
3: Yep. Yep, in in our in our interview with CP uh with CP Wilson the 3rd, he I think he even mentioned he did. that he came in after but but Gabriel had done the cover for it and it was yeah. it was nice to see the respect that he had for for Gabriel's work.
1: Oh so. gosh, yes. And I was I was sitting in the producer's tent I basically when Jamie got the email. And so, you know, she pulls up her phone and turns around. It's like, want to see something cool? And, you know, I get to see this draft of this. And it was like a red line draft and everything of this awesome robot drawing. She's like, that's, you know, one of Gay Rodriguez's drawings. So it's like, oh, my God. So I had no idea at all, like, how it was going to be used in the show or when. So it was really, really cool to, to finally see where that ended up as well. Because, um, you know, that's a fun piece that he got to do for the show. And it was great to see that they brought him in, you know, that they were able to have him do something and get it on screen. Cause that robot is pretty badass.
3: I love how the show honors the source material. Oh uh, God. Which, yes. Which people just normal people watching who aren't digging into all of the details would maybe completely pass them by. But the fact that the show feels the need to honor those people who have contributed so much to the creation of this universe really resonates with me. I really, it makes me, it endears the show to me even more than it already is. Oh God. So I love that. I love that. It's great detail.
1: As a visual artist, the overall sense of respect for creativity that this story and that this show cultivates is probably one of the major draws for me. The story of Vic McQueen, I mean, I I think I mentioned it in our interview with with Jamie. We had like a bulleted list of things that are like similar. You know, I grew up in the same kind of lower middle class you know, working class parents. I was an artist. I wanted to go to art school. RISD was my choice school. I ended up at Maryland instead, but um, my stepfather used to work on bikes. So I used to ride bikes with him. My parents did split up after high school. Uh, the list just goes on. Um, heavy drinking in season two. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, But yeah, it's kind of weird. The, the, the season the, two of yeah. your life. Basically, um, I've been ch- I've been channeling some Vic McQueen
3: hardcore in the past couple oh, of months. I, I, I think I think <laughs> I, I think Vic McQueen is channeling you, Anna. I, just, I oh, would I would check your bush to see if Joe right? Hill is standing in them watching you. It seems you, like he is uh, ripped from the so- headlines.
1: That's so funny that you said that, because when I did actually say something like that to him at one point, I think it was last season, when he was asking people to send me questions. I was like, were you under my bed when I was growing up? Because this, this character is almost me. I mean, it's so crazy freaky. It, it just, the list goes on. Um, I had the same hair, even. I had the same wardrobe it well, just that, doesn't yeah
3: that's that's unfortunate with the hair i, mean, I know i know that, that ha- the hair is not great Anna. no
1: she she and she wears it much better too yeah but hey you know it was the 80s i, I at least had that excuse
3: i hear you i hear you uh wow well yeah i mean yeah. so listen every you know there's always parts of every show every show that we love and not just you and I. I think any show that people love, I think part of the the reason for the devoted fandom is the fact that you see parts of yourself, good or bad, in the characters, right? The, the idea that yeah. something you're watching resonates with you, even if it's in a bad way, I think it still endears you to the show because you feel like someone is telling your story to an extent. That's a really powerful emotion. The, the idea of being seen, the idea of feeling like... Someone recognizes what you've gone through, what your struggle may be. It, obviously, Joe Hill is not in your basement but or, or under your bed, but the fact that he has been able to tell a story and that Jamie has brought to life on screen, this story that so resonates with you is a really special thing that is rare. It is It really rare. is, it is yeah. rare to find representation of your struggle and your experiences, the good, the bad, the ugly, and all of our lives are filled with good, bad, and ugly. And to find that put on screen in some way is an intangible feeling. That when you find it, you have to fucking hold onto it and you have to advocate it. Because you almost feel like you owe it to, as like a thank oh you. Oh my God, yes, like, th- yes. Thank you for making me feel seen and making yeah. me feel like someone understands.
1: And giving this story that can really relate to and really learn things from. Like I said, just it's just the whole idea of it centering around creativity. I mean the word strong creative is is the word for superhero in this universe. and And that is such a beautiful thing because – Art and creativity, no matter what medium you express yourself in, is really important, I think, for for every human being. And I think everyone can look inside themselves and find something creative that they do. And it doesn't mean that I paint or I draw or I sing. It means you turn what you do into an art. So if you are a landscape worker, You do that to the most amazing ability, and that becomes your art because you – that is your power. You make that the best, you know, and everybody can look at what they do the best as your art. And, and that's, you know, something that I always try to tell people who get down on themselves and say, well, I'm not creative and I don't have an artistic bone in my body. They just don't even see that that's possible. It is. Everybody can do it. Everybody can find something that, that is their art. And that is my soapbox for the day. Thank you.
3: Well, I mean, it's it, I, I love it. I agree with it. I personally do not actually have an artistic bone in my body, but I, I, I agree with what you're saying. I think everyone generally are too hard on themselves. I think there is a little too much denial and, and insecurity in what we do just across the board. And we could all do with some people backing us up and reminding us that the thing you do makes you special and makes you stand out in this world that, yeah. you know, which again, this is, this is a theme that we're, we're, identifying here, but you and I, I know for sure would also say it was a major thing about the magicians that we both love. Oh my loved. God. Yeah. exactly. The, the idea of being seen is a core, core theme of the magicians. And, it is maybe yeah. the central theme that you are not alone. It is one of the things the show did best, and it's the reason that the fandom is so devoted to it. And Gnosis is no different in that respect. Let yeah. me ask you a question, yeah. just to bring it back to the episode. We talked about the need for Vic to give up drinking, to give up her escape, to give up her knife so that she could be a mom. A- and alcoholics are never cured. You're always in recovery. Anyone who has an addiction is never cured. You always are in recovery. Because there's always the potential that you fall back into those patterns. If we take that statement as true, does it make Maggie kind of a shipbird friend to tempt her so hard in the diner about trying to get her to come along on what Maggie is now going to lean in hard to on these adventures? You know, the the empty forest, the tickle cricket. What was the cricket one that she mentions? I don't I I, my, I my, remember my
1: either. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, gosh, like hmm. she
3: she's she's tempting her heart here, but she knows what Vic has gone through. She knows what Vic needs to do yeah, in order gosh. to stay on the straight and narrow. I feel like Maggie's kind of being a shitty friend here.
1: I don't know. Like I can see that perspective definitely, like so I can understand why you see that, but you know, I maybe, have, let I, me
3: say, let me say it differently. Okay. Let me say it differently. Maybe she's <laughs> not being a shitty, maybe she's not being a shitty friend. Maybe she's just being a selfish person. I, it's one or the other. Because l- I, I, don't think she, I don't think she wants Vic to do these things just so Vic will do them. I think she wants Vic to do these things so that she comes along on the adventure with Maggie. Because Maggie wants her bestie there. So I yeah. think maybe she's not being shitty. Or I think she's being shitty by association. But I think she's being very selfish trying to get Vic to embrace the thing that she can see Vic is already clearly struggling with.
1: I think that's definitely true. I mean, I think there's a little bit of a lack of thought uh, about Vic's situation and what she's dealt with with Wayne, you know, because she is a mom and it's a little irresponsible to just tell her to get up and and run with me, you know, basically again, let's go, you know, while she's now got this family that she's really trying hard to commit to and keep together instead of, you know, accidentally burning it down. But at the same time, I also understand Maggie's perspective where she's found this other person who can truly understand her and her gift and what it's like to be this exceptional, strong, creative. And she doesn't want to let go of that. She wants to continue to experience this world with her now because they've bonded. And I think that she doesn't want Vic to give it up, you know, just because she also, I think, knows that it's a part of Vic too, so it's a, it's a, it's uh, yeah. a really kind of complex situation because it is you don't want your friend to give up something that makes them who they are.
3: It's a little bit like when a friend finds new religion, though, isn't it? Where Maggie lived this straight and narrow life, suppressing who she is for the sake of her relationship with Tabitha for so many years. Finally, had enough. Finally, after you know the hourglass man got through to her, gave her that last push to really embrace herself and her tiles gave her the tools that she could use her tiles without damaging herself. A- and so now she's like, I'm a born again, strong creative. Like I found Jeebus and I I'm all about my tiles. And so I think part of that is playing into here where she doesn't want Vic to quote unquote sacrifice who she truly is because she's seeing what she did to herself. She She's thinking about how she changed who she was, how she suppressed who she truly was for the oh, sake of her yeah. relationship or a Tabitha. And so she doesn't want Vic to do that same thing. But in doing that, and I think she would probably see that as being a good friend and, and giving her good advice. And I think generally it is good advice to not suppress who you are for the sake of a relationship because you're only going to end up miserable. But I don't know that Vic is necessarily suppressing who she truly is rather than making a choice yeah. at a fork in the road. yeah. You know, she is as much a mother and partner to Lou as she is a strong creative. And it's less A or B and more like a fork in the road. And and I think maybe down the road, I don't, you know, maybe she can use her inscape again. But now, for now, I think she feels like she has to be a mom. She, and, and to do a, to be a mom requires her to put those other things up on the shelf, alcohol, her powers. And, And so I think it is, I think it is complex. But there, there's definitely an aspect of that scene that kind of rubbed me the wrong way, where, like, you, you know,
1: I. <laughs> you, you know, like when, I, when I.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: Like kind of like a pusher. Like when I was married and then like a single friend would come up to me and be like, yeah, we're going to go to Vegas. We're going to get blow and hookers. It's going to be fucking fantastic. And i like, motherfucker, I've got a kid and I've got a job and I've got bills. Like I can't go exactly, to Vegas right. for, for hookers and blow. What the fuck? You know? And that's kind of Maggie and and, and Vic yeah. in the scenario. Yeah. And, but, you know, Vic, Maggie's, Maggie understands, you know, she's cool. You know, she, I think she leaves it better with with Vic than she leaves it with Tabitha. But, oh yeah. But Maggie then definitely goes and goes and you know looks for her proverbial hookers and blow. She is full tilt into whatever this new world of thought is going to bring her. But before we get there, and I think that's where the episode kind of ends in our in our discussion. Are you happy or sad that Maggie and Tabitha seemingly do not get back together?
1: You know, when when they first sort of had that breakup moment in the SUV, I was I was really disappointed, but. I think now it just sort of makes sense. It feels more right. I mean, it sucks because the characters are are still obviously drawn to each other. They're, They're giving each other eyes in every scene that they're together, but it's painful. And it's sort of just like that reflection of, you know, when you can't be with somebody that you should be with for some really stupid reason. And it's sad, but... I, I kinda understand it and I kinda do want to see Maggie running off into the world of thought personally. Just me, maybe. I don't know.
3: It just makes sense.
1: <laughs> what about oh, you? I mean did a, you
3: No, they they should not be together because yeah. they just want different things in life. Yeah, it's, it
1: seems like it it's, now.
3: it's 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 Hookers and Below in Vegas versus I wanna have a family and be home and, and watch, you know, Little House on the Prairie with my kids. It's and be normal. It's, 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 and be a normie Normal. and that's not and maggie's done that she's been there she wants to go embrace that and i'm here for it i mean if season three excites me for the idea of millie and and million maybe millie and wayne building a new christmas land and all that would go into that the terrible and horrifying hijinks that will go into that the idea of exploring maggie out Going through the inscapes of the United States, you know, the United States of inscapes and 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 and, yeah,
1: we have a map. (laughs) Yeah, we've got a fucking
3: map and, and just exploring this world of thought. That's a series all on its own. It is for sure. But if we only get it as part of season three, as part of Maggie's journey in season three, that's a fucking seller for me. That makes me tune in every week. Because Jakara is that captivating as Maggie. As she holds the screen. She holds your attention. And just the limitless creative possibilities. Do you put Jamie's brain together with Joe Hill's brain, together with the writing staff's brain, and all of the great directors they work with. You're going to come up with some balls stories to tell Maggie on, on this journey. Now tell me, who is around the corner in the Providence Hotel? Is it the Hourglass Man? Is that? I would talk? love
1: that. I would love it. If it was the hourglass man, that would just be the best thing ever.
3: So. It would maybe make me squeal. If, if they got if to we bring pick him,
1: up... they got to do that. They have to. Right.
3: <laughs> right, the idea of these two being brought back together after she essentially tries to kill him and smashes hourglass, but now he's going to act as her mentor across the river, sticks into this new world. You Ooh, know, I like I, that. <laughs> I, I fucking love it. I love it because it's so dangerous. Everything about this end scene with Maggie, the lights crackling, right, the electricity indicating that there's power there. The going down the 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 out of order elevator, taking her down. The tension, everything about it made me so fucking excited. But also, again, another hair standing up on my arm moment. It was so dangerous feeling. Everything she's going to go through on this journey feels like it is fraught with danger and excitement. And I think that's exactly what Maggie's looking for. And it's exactly what I want to see her go through.
1: And and what a great cliffhanger, you know? I mean, just leaving us with her in the elevator. And that was it. We have no idea. <laughs> I love that. I loved it. Very much so.
3: I think that basically takes us through the episode. Yeah. But I want to ask you, let, let's think worst case scenario. All right. There is no season three. This is the series finale for the show. Are you happy with where Vic, Maggie, Manx all Uh, let's talk about our core three. I guess we didn't really see Bing in this episode, but let's talk about those core three where Charlie dead, Maggie engaging on this new, this beginning, embarking on this new journey and Vic doubling down to be a responsible mom and take care of her son. Are you happy with where this journey brought them to? If this is the end, if we never saw them again, is this a, is this a full story for you to have digested?
1: 100%. I absolutely love it. For all the reasons that that I think I've brought up about what the show says about creativity and about people and family, you know, I love what it's done with the characters from the book, you know, as far as keeping their soul and and also taking them to different places. I definitely could see this as a a complete piece and be completely happy with it. I mean, if I keep talking too much, I will start to cry. Because it means that much to me. This story does. So, you know, when you asked me that, yeah, definitely. I thought it really ended on a beautiful note, honestly. I really do.
3: I I 100% agree. I think all their stories ended in the best possible place for that character. The idea of Vic having Lou and having Wayne, and now finally getting to be a real family that can heal and be together. I love that. Because that's what Vic didn't have as a kid. Her family was fractured. As a parent, the thing I always want most from my son is for him to do better than I did. And for him to have a life better than I had. And, and, And Vic now gets to have a family that she didn't have. She gets to build on and improve the experience that she had growing up. And she gets to have that with Wayne and Lou and build that all together. I love that for her. Maggie... She's this caged animal who has been declawed, who is now getting her claws back, and she's going to go out into the world and wreak havoc and experience everything. That's exactly where Maggie needs to be now. She doesn't need to be with Tabitha. That's served for a time, but she now has the tools to use her powers without damaging herself. She's born again, and and that is where her journey needs to be, and that's exactly right for that character. She's been so restless for so long, she's now going to get the fly. And, and Millie... Yeah. And listen, Charlie, Charlie needed to die. Charlie is a bad guy. I mean, we often talk about how Bing maybe seemed worse than Charlie and Charlie maybe is kind of a good guy. No, Charlie makes is a bad guy. He has redeeming qualities that makes him, he's very charismatic. He has like a pretty good sense of humor. You know, he's easy on the eyes in his young form, but that's all top coat. He is a bad guy and he deserved to die. He needed to die. For what he did to all of those children, for what he did to his daughter, his wife, for the pain, and he caused Vic and her family, yeah. he was a bad guy who needed yeah. to die so i
1: mean all of all of the characters like you know just just all so well thought out and yeah. complex, and where they've ended up just it really does make sense for each one of them, even linda who's who's got the whole crew now living in her house, you know basically with you know the husband that we still have never seen.
3: Virginia, Virginia yeah, never she, got her ginger list. Apparently, she never
1: got her ginger.
3: Man, I was so I was so close to asking Jamie about I know, it, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to make it weird. But I was so like, so what happened with all the gingers? Was yeah. Rupert Grint not available? Like, no, Rupert Grint <laughs> was on Virginia's list. I mean, he's the ginger of all gingers. So, too much, too much. Uh, uh, what man. an amazing well, ride, though! It
1: really has been. This well, amazing ride. an amazing. Amazing season
3: absolutely amazing season but it's not it's not done yet though because now we have we have the final word from the high priestess herself stick around now as we interview jamie o'brien on the season on the show on her own personal journey to becoming a writer to to how it influences this how her personal stories influence the show the stories we see in the show it's a great interview i hope you guys stick around and then afterwards anna and i will come back and wrap up this episode and the season so stick around Our guest tonight on Strong Creatives Welcome is Nosferatu's showrunner and head Strong Creative, Jamie O'Brien. Jamie, thank you so much for coming on tonight and after we've all just watched the season two finale. And congratulations on such a dynamic season. How are you doing?
2: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here talking to you guys. And I'm hanging in there. <laughs>
3: I'm right, still on lockdown. I'm assuming like everyone else and just mm-hmm. w- staring at the walls.
2: <laughs> you know, we're still here at home, healthy, and uh, so can't complain.
3: <laughs> it seems like only yesterday that we talked, but I mean, it was June. It was it was two months ago now. Now that the summer's kind of gone, how are you holding up in quarantine? Are you finding, because we've talked to a lot of people and a lot of them are starting to do really creative things. A lot of them are writing. I think I've talked to four different people in the last couple of weeks. Who are writing plays? Like, how are you filling your? How are you filling your like creative time? Uh, those these are days? those
2: are very ambitious people who
1: are. It was, it's not a competition, less...
3: Jamie. It's not a no, competition.
1: No,
2: no, I, I, I get it, and, and I I think that's amazing.
1: I just got a text, by the way, um, real quick. Josh Meltzner says hi, Jamie.
2: I love Josh Meltzner. Tell him I said hi too. Okay, I will. <laughs> did you guys talk about the reindeer head? I feel like that yes. was his pride and joy this season. Yes. Yes,
1: we did. <laughs> yeah. And the half-eaten baby deer that I saw. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's, cool. yep, that's right. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Uh-huh. All right.
2: What were we talking about? <laughs> oh,
3: man. I think I was
2: telling you guys about my, my, basically, my rat journey. We've got rats in the garden, and I've oh, been... Yes. Uh, During quarantine, rather than writing anything, I have been trying to make my backyard as inhospitable to rats as possible to try to get them to move out.
1: (laughs) You've got the secret of Nim going on, I'm telling you. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I gotta tell you guys, I don't like them. <laughs>
3: uh, hey. They're gross, disgusting creatures, and they should all be eliminated from the earth. You know, so, <laughs> you know, like people like spiders. All right, well,
2: spiders, yeah. they,
3: the spiders have a they have a function. They're gross, and I hate them, but at least they have a function.
2: Uh, rats Correct. don't have a
3: function. They're they're. Just- I mean,
2: yeah, they're just they they do provide food for certain creatures, but um, I feel like those creatures could also eat rabbits. <laughs> Right. Hey, I mean, yeah. if it's
3: good enough for Millie, it's good enough for yeah, other animals. Exactly. So.
2: exactly. I'm,
1: I'm the one here with the quarantine bunnies. I've got the rabbits <laughs> eating at my feet. Seriously, it's been so long. I've been sitting here. They're that used to me now. It's insane. That's why That's I'm going to start, you know, producing a show or something and dress them up. I mean, because they're, they're just right here.
2: We all have really mechanisms. mechanisms. Yep. <laughs> Let,
3: let's focus. we got to We got to bear down okay, here, people. Okay, okay, all, okay. Right, gonna buckle, buckle all right. We're going to deep breaths. All right. No. We're focusing on the finale. All right, so yeah, so Eddie and I, you know, and, and a lot of the fans, we've been talking all season how the show had a real going for it vibe, like, like a real amped up energy to it all season long. I mean, the, just the the storytelling in like the Bruce, M- Bruce Wayne McQueen episode as a perfect example of that. Was that like a real conscious decision on your part, the writers, the directors? Or did it just kind of happen organically from the stories you wanted to tell this season?
2: I would say the latter, you know, we were just following the story. When you begin with two characters who know who one another are and know one another's strengths and weaknesses, and one of them has a child that's about the age of the children that the other one likes to abduct, you're automatically starting at a at a much kind of faster high stakes place than we were starting in season one where we were kind of exploring the world a little bit more uh and where season one there was a lot more mystery i think uh to the storytelling this season it's just again just a function of the story that we were telling it just led us to this more high octane kind of actiony storytelling that you saw in season two
3: yeah, but there was also a sophistication, though, to to how you guys told the stories. I mean,
2: well, there you go.
3: Well, no. uh, you know, I mean, that you could have told the epi- you could have told that Bruce McQueen episode in a much simpler, easier way. You could have phoned it in a lot more and still told an effective story. But you, you, you did a really interesting thing with the backing up from the different POVs and then moving forward, and you know, with the title cards with C.P. Wilson's title cards. I mean, it was a really sophisticated. It was like you guys were flexing a little bit, and I really appreciated it. It was, uh, it was interesting to see, and, and just the world building that you did this season was so expansive. And it was just like a real treat for the fans who like to dig deep into the lore. Ah. It, it was a real feast for that, I think.
2: Definitely. That's so great to hear. Yeah. Um, you know, at that episode, episode five, um, Bruce Wayne McQueen, it was written by Tom Brady. And it's funny, when we started season two, One of the, one of the things that we talked about was that Joe does that little trick a lot in the novel, where he'll start to tell the story, then kind of from one character's point of view. And specifically, the abduction sequence is is written this way. Part of it is from Wayne's point of view, and then you jump back and you're in Vic's point of view. The story doesn't play out exactly the same way, but I think it's pretty close. And we wanted to honor that, and uh, I wasn't sure exactly how we were going to do that. And then when Tom started working on the story, he said to me, you know, this really, to me, I think is a story about Vic and Wayne. And so I want to just focus on their points of view, which I thought was really smart. And we just decided to to kind of go for it. And then it's funny, when we got the director's cut, the title cards were actually not in the script. And when I first watched the director's cut, I realized nobody's going to know what the heck is happening here. Right, (laughs) right. So we added the title cards and posts to kind of just ground the viewer a little bit and help them understand, at least at the beginning. I think by the end of that episode, you understand what's happening, but at least at the beginning, just to help them understand what we were up to.
1: Jamie, I just wanted to personally tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity to be able to visit the set last year and see the work you guys do and what the team does. Your hospitality and kindness through that crazy, long, amazing day, I'll just treasure it forever. So seriously, and thank you for being a friend to the fan (laughs)
2: community, too. It's a pleasure, Anna. It was so great having you. I was so delighted you were able to come. You've sort of just created this, this
1: assembly of, of strong creatives and, <laughs> and brought this story to life. And honestly, that's kind of what lasts for me is the people that I meet and the bonds that you form around these stories. So, I mean, this family's just really changed my life, like without hyperbole. There's just people I've met that I'm going to be friends with forever now.
2: Um, yeah. That's so I just amazing. really
1: appreciate that
2: thank you um and 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 back at you you know I think that the fan community for the show is just a lot of fun and really supportive of one another and I, I I just think it's always like all positive vibes on like your Facebook chat pages and that's a testament to you frankly so oh, uh, yeah, you. It's, a, it's, a great, it's a great fan community so thank you
3: I think thank a lot you. of times though it, and and Anna is a great admin and, and runs great Facebook groups yeah I think it really does flow from the show and the interaction Interaction that the cast and the creatives kind of get to give to the fans. You you help train and encourage that kind of discourse and and civility and and, and enthusiasm. So you know, a lot of credit goes to you and to Joe uh, and and everyone who participates in the Facebook group uh, to
1: definitely
2: you know
3: really fostering that environment. You know, you make us care.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thanks guys. Thanks guys. I think it's, you know, it's, it's basically all we're doing is sharing our enthusiasm. And so, uh, if if that catches on, then, then great.
1: It's, it's to me like an exchange. I mean, you don't, you're not on a live stage. You're not getting the audience participation and feedback instantly right there as you're performing. So to me, these, these communities are our way of of sort of giving that energy back to the show and the people who make it because that kind of becomes a symbiotic relationship yeah
2: and it's it's so cool
3: i think before we get too far into the discussion tonight and i can already hear people screaming because we're 10 minutes into this into our talk i have to address the wraith in the room let's do it is there (laughs) any word on season three news that you can share at all. What
2: have you heard? What have you heard? You know, guys, I wish there was, but no, no, I haven't heard anything. You know, listen, I think that he has his hands full with the pandemic and trying to figure out how to get production sure. up and started for some of their shows that they already know are coming back. I don't know, <laughs> I haven't heard, uh and I think that as soon as they kind of, I'm, I'm sure I'll be the first they tell when they know.
3: <laughs> you would hope so. You would hope
2: yeah. so. <laughs> but, yeah. So far, I'm sorry. I wish I had news one way or the other but I don't
3: well at
1: least we can still hope right now right and we can right. still beat the drum yeah,
2: yeah. but look my you, fingers you've, are crossed
1: well look you've already had this amazing career writing for some of my favorite shows like Big Love Da Vinci's Demons Fear the Walking Dead Hell on Wheels and now you're the Nosferatu showrunner can you please tell us how did you get into producing TV in the first place was this something you always had in mind to aim for
2: I was a theater nerd when I was in high school you know I I was in drama club and my route to TV kind of was like drama club to trying to be an actor, to realizing that I wasn't a very good actor, to um, writing plays. Uh, And then I went to drama school for playwriting, actually. I have an MFA in playwriting. And when I graduated I moved to New York and became a nanny, and one of my classmates, another TV writer named Roland Jones, moved out to Los Angeles and immediately started writing for Weeds. And oh, wow. I was oh, say, wow. yeah, about, like, two months into the summer after I graduated, I got my first, like, student loan bill came in, and... <laughs> And my life kind of fell apart. I lost my apartment. I lost my partner at the time. And Rollin was like, you should move to L.A. and write for TV. I think you'd like it. And so I did. And it took me a while to kind of break in. I started off as an assistant. I worked for Rollin's managers. I was his assistant initially uh, and then became a writer's assistant for a television show and, and then eventually broke in and became a staff writer.
1: Wow, that's a crazy journey.
3: Now, fast forward a couple of years. Do you or or several years? Do you still have... The playwright bug inside of you. I mean, I was you know, joking, but I, I mean, I wasn't really joking before about people sitting at home writing plays. But it sounds like something you actually would do. Yeah, I, mean.
2: I haven't written a play since I graduated from drama school. Occasionally, I will see a play that is really inspiring to me, and I'll be like, "Oh, geez, it'd be great to write a play." But then that feeling passes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I go back to my TV world.
3: The, the next student, Bill loan you know, Bill loan yeah, Bill exactly, comes and you're like, ah, oh, exactly. fuck it.
1: Well, now I know why you, you've kind of got your writer's room stacked with playwrights. I kind of get yeah, that Yeah, I mean, I yeah. it's a
2: way, you know, selfishly, it's a way for me to stay connected to the theater. Also, playwrights are really good dramatic writers. And weirdly, like one thing that I didn't realize until I started hiring a bunch of playwrights is that they kind of already have a knack for producing as well. Because, you know, working in the theater, they are on new plays, especially they are, they're at rehearsals, they're talking to actors, they're helping make decisions about props. So they're already comfortable talking to fellow collaborators. Sometimes a young TV writer will be fearful on a set. I've found that playwrights, I'm generalizing, obviously, but oftentimes they have uh, a lot more confidence coming in, which is super helpful, I think.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm going to get into one of our fan questions from the Facebook group. This is coming from Different Mike, and he wants to know what the biggest difference is between being a producer for a show like Nosferatu versus Fear the Walking Dead, and what's one of your favorite aspects about shooting Nosferatu?
2: Oh, wow. Okay, well... The difference between, for me, the difference between Nosferatu and Fear the Walking Dead was that on Fear the Walking Dead, I was not the showrunner, and I was... I was a co-executive producer on Fear the Walking Dead, and my job there mostly was to run the writer's room and kind of push the story-breaking process forward in the writer's room. Fear the Walking Dead has a lot of executive producers, including at the time our showrunner Dave Erickson, but also Gail Ann Hurd is a producer. We had a directing producer. uh, And so there were a lot of folks that were making decisions about production. That kind of fell outside my job description for that show specifically although on hell on wheels i was more involved with that stuff and i was a co-executive producer on that as well uh, it's just kind of each show is different yeah like i said specifically on fear my job was to stay in the writer's room and and, and keep breaking story with the with the team of writers there and then here on oscaratu i'm the showrunner so i my responsibilities <laughs> there are a lot more responsibilities slightly more expansive bit. yeah Thank you yeah. thanks <laughs> And then was the second part of the question, what is the most fun about working on Asperatu? Yeah. What's your favorite aspect about shooting? Seeing the cast and crew come together to do their jobs is really, really exciting to me. The show is, I think, a very challenging show to produce. We do an awful lot, you know, given the the time and money constraints that we have. You know, we just wrote our hearts out this season, and I kind of, like, my thought behind that was, let's just write what we want to write, and if production doesn't think they can handle it. Yeah, I mean, the amount of creativity that goes into, and just, like, really smart problem-solving that goes into, you know, how do you make the race fall through the floor of the bridge is a Astonishing. It's really fun to be at the table when smart people are figuring those things out.
3: <laughs> I would love to be a fly on the wall. We have questions all over the place today. We have behind the scenes questions. We have uh, finale questions and we have season long questions. This is a season long question. It, it feels like it's been hinted all season, but can you tell us definitively if, if Wayne is a strong creative or not?
2: Uh, I think that that is a question that you will have to tune into season three to find the answer to. Oh, 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 I like
3: that. That's the best answer. That is the best. Well, Mm. I kind of wanted that answer, but I also like that too. (laughs) I like the, I like the, you know, well, we'll find out next season.
2: I mean, if you remember, Vic kind of didn't come into her power until she was 18 years old. So I think that, you know, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we get a chance to keep making the show, we'll find out.
1: That's a nice seed to plant.
3: That's a master storyteller right there. Yes.
2: Speaking of, you are a storyteller.
1: I mean, something drew you to this world, this creative expression that's basically as old as humanity itself. I mean, I think that's why we all love stories. They're the earliest way that we connected with each other. So what I'd like to know is, uh, what is one of the formative stories of your life? What story or stories helped make you who you are today?
2: Oh, wow. Um, I'll tell a couple stories. When I was a kid, like a really little kid, an uncle of mine, my favorite uncle, my Uncle Steve, took me to the movies and he took me to see The Black Stallion in the movie theater. It was mesmerizing for me. Like at the time, it, it, it turned me into one of those girls who was like, I, I need a horse. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> the first time that I remember sitting in a movie theater that wasn't like a cartoon and being completely drawn in and mesmerized from the story from start to finish. And then another time that I remember like being like, wow, was the first time actually my parents were divorced and my dad's girlfriend when I was about nine Took me to see. She took me into Boston to see a production of Cats. And again, like whatever you think of Cats, <laughs> as a nine-year-old going in and seeing the theatrical production of Cats blew my mind. And you got to go up on the stage, and you got to get a signatures from the actors Ooh. and. I was like, I think that that was where I caught the theater bug.
3: I'd like to go on record that I stan Cats, the Broadway production. I am a fan. Uh-huh. I do not apologize for it in any way, shape or form. I,
2: I am with you. And, and you know, I have to say I, the movie and I know the movie caught a lot of flack and mm-hmm. I know the movie is kind of crazy. But I mean, man, it was a big swing. Mm-hmm. Uh I have to say that I'm moved by that movie. That movie moves me.
3: There are some real fever dream aspects to that movie to be sure, but I, I, I appreciate the ambition of it. It is a huge swing. Uh, I like the new song that, you know, ALW did with Taylor Swift. Yeah, Jenna yep. Hudson. I mean, her voice is undeniable. I, yeah.
2: There's some artistry in that movie, for sure.
3: Yeah. It's just um, it's just easy to dunk on it, is the problem.
2: Because so. it's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. that's also like, I mean, gosh, I mean, talk about brave. I appreciate I appreciate the play. I appreciate
1: the movie. (laughs) I mean, I, I used to recite the poem. Well, there you go. It's that ingrained to some extent. Well, I think we
3: all agree that Anna is a curious cat of a certain sort. I think you you could have been one of T. S. Eliot's kittens uh, talking about Metro. So, I kept
1: thinking one of their names was depravity, but it was macavity.
2: They uh, don't worry though; they
3: definitely rhyme macavity and depravity. Uh, I think at least once in his song. So
2: I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh,
3: as a, as a kind of follow up, a tangential follow up to that question, there was a big theme about parents and forgiveness throughout the season with Vic now becoming a parent of her own and kind of reconciling with her own parents. And in the last couple episodes, there was this big theme on forgiveness, forgiveness of yourself, forgiveness of your parents. Was that a a theme that resonated with you on a personal level such that you wanted to bring it into the show in, in such a prominent way?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that a lot of us wrestle with as we get older, right? I mean, no one's parents are perfect. When you're a kid, you can be pretty hard on them. And some of that is deserved. And some of it is maybe you have a different perspective on when, when you get a little older and start making your own mistakes. I don't have children myself, but I've spoken to a lot of people who do. And what I hear a lot is that having your own kids gives you a new perspective on your parents. Yeah. And I think, and again, like, again, no one's perfect. So you can try to be a perfect parent, but you're going to make mistakes too. Yeah, I don't know. I, I guess the hope is that, you know, uh, and of course, it's circumstantial, everybody, the circumstances of people's lives are all different. But for Vic, you know, I think she says it in the in the in the show, I think she wants to forgive her parents, but it's hard for her to forgive them, because that would mean forgiving herself, because she's making a lot of the same mistakes that right, they have right. made. Exactly. And she's not sure if she's ready to do that. Because as we know, she's she can be pretty tough on herself. But I think that, by the end of the season, what she realizes is that she needs to kind of forgive herself in order to be there for Wayne. Otherwise, she's just going to keep beating herself up and running away is not helpful to Wayne. That's the theme that I think we all deal with at one point or another in our lives, our yeah. regret.
3: I mean, I could say personally, like as a dad myself who has a strained relationship with his parents, I found the Chris McQueen line in particular, just the way he dealt with Vic and tried to apologize, you know, for what he did wrong and trying to instill in her the idea to learn from his mistakes, because I think he really saw her going down that path. I mean, she was really emulating his footsteps in, in a big destructive kind of way. Personally, anyway, I thought it was a really honest telling of what we hope, our parents would do and that we as parents would do down the line. And when we can look back a little objectively about what we did right and did wrong and kind of impart some wisdom to our kids that hopefully they can learn from. It it struck with me. So I I think you guys did a a pretty good job of of telling that story. Oh,
1: thank you. Thank you. I agree. More about Vic McQueen, because, um, you know, something obviously drew you to this character when you first read Joe Hill's novel. I think you've mentioned it in different interviews, sort of like some of the qualities that make her so compelling. Because of the maniac that I am, I think I might have sent you an actual bulleted list (laughs) of reasons why I thought I was like Vic McQueen. So was there something about her character that you also related to on that personal level? Like, how are you like Vic?
2: I, I mean, listen. Vic grew up in Haverhill. I grew up in a town called Billerica, which is right down the highway from Haverhill. Um, I think we grew up we grew up in similar circumstances, not exactly yeah. the same. I'm not an art student, but I think that I shared her longing to see more of the world. I think I shared her feeling of being an outsider that i think you know it, it was probably just as self-inflicted <laughs> as it was by the world you know one of the things that we were really careful about doing in season 1 is that vic's prep school friends are really kind to vic you know like they're never like you're a jerk <laughs> um we don't like you uh we you yeah. know, they're always they're, both Drew and Willa are super kind to Vic, and they may say things that make her uncomfortable, but that's out of ignorance and not out of malice. And her feeling like she doesn't belong is really something that comes from within her. And I think that that is certainly something that I could relate to. And then, you know, what I love about her which you've heard me say this, I'm sure, a million times because it's so it, – it is why I wanted to make the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> her, her courage and her heart and her caring for people, she's pretty awesome. And now those are things that I guess I would hope for for myself um, or would, would, you know, aspire to.
1: Yeah, she's in- inspiring very she in is. that way. She She
2: absolutely is.
1: I have another fan question from Melissa in the Facebook group. Um, so we're going to switch gears and ask how did the idea for Craig's return come about where he's kind of like the crispy angel on Wayne's shoulder inside the Wraith um, because that was just a complete surprise. That's great. I mean part
2: of it like okay so it was a confluence of a, of a number of ideas. One was we all love Del- like Dalton Harrod and wanted, yeah. to, uh, just love him. He's awesome. Um, yeah. And we all love Craig you know so add to that love in the book, in the, the story in the book is Linda is at, actually dies in the book. And she appears to Wayne as a ghost in the Wraith. And, of course, in our show, Linda is still alive. And so mm-hmm. that seemed like we didn't want to kill Linda just in order to kind of have someone in the Wraith with Wayne. And then we remembered as we were kind of talking about that, we were like, oh, yeah, Craig died in the Wraith. So oh, wow. yeah, so we we that was where we mashed together that idea. But I love it because I love Dalton and Craig.
3: Well, this was like I mean, it was a great it was a great way to again expand the lore and expand the world uh, that the show kind of takes place in, in in a really tangible way. And seeing him, it was great, and and the effect he has on Wayne in the Wraith and kind of keeping him grounded and and slowing the transformation it was it was heartwarming to see and especially there is this whole unspoken angle of he's the father and wayne yes. has no idea and yeah it, oh, I god. mean it really resonated. Oh, I god. mean yeah when he's asking how's your dad like you know yeah, how's your dad and, oh, oh my god it was it was killer I got
1: chills again yeah. just right now yeah yeah oh.
2: yeah
3: we started about when you add Crispy Craig and crackleface Cassie to <laughs> you know together Adam and I've been batting around this theory that the wraith maybe can't for lack of a better word, digest the adults <laughs> uh-huh. in some way, uh-huh. Uh-huh. A- 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 and and you know, and they that's how, stuck. yeah, they kind of get stuck. Or the their good parts, the Obi Wan Kenobi ghost force part of them kind of gets stuck behind, and and that maybe the wraith doesn't even know, and Charlie certainly doesn't seem to know that this goodness kind of remains behind. Is that theory anywhere close to what you guys kind of invented for yourself when you were when you were cracking the story, or? Um,
2: uh, I think that you guys have thought much more deeply about uh, the of uh, it. Uh, <laughs> um, I love it. We approached it from just purely a story angle, and truthfully, we had Ghost Ca- Cassie. We I mean, we called Ghost Cassie and Ghost Craig in the writers' room, but I kind of like what did you do? crackleface? Cassie Crack- and- crackleface yeah. Cassie and Crispy Craig. Crispy Craig and yeah. Crispy Craig. Yeah. We wanted to tell a story initially, uh, a Millie story. And we were also, you know, as you know, like interested in exploring Charlie Manx's backstory this season because we knew we were going to be done with him. And so we were like, how can we tell a really juicy Manks story and also tell a really juicy Millie story? So Cassie, of course, came up. And then I can't remember. It was a writer's room idea that there was a house in Christmasland that housed all of Charlie's Deepest fears, and you know it's like buried in his subconscious. So, Ghost Cassie kind of came out of that conversation, and then one, again, once we started talking about Wayne, and you know, one of the things, so I forgive me for spoiling the book. I'm, I'm just gonna go for it, though. So, if you guys haven't read the book, um, I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna go people. for it. <laughs> There's this trope in the book where once Wayne is in the, is in the car. The the process of him turning into a demon is slowed because Linda appears to him as a ghost and says, if you think backwards, it will slow the process. And it's kind of like the car is going forward. And if you're thinking backwards, that somehow mitigates the way that the car is moving forward. It's awesome in the book. And then when we started talking about it in the room, it's a little heady. You know what I mean? And so we were trying to come up with a more emotionally resonant for a television show way to mitigate the effects of the race again Linda was alive in our show uh and we thought you know well we have ghost Cassie there are ghosts in this world uh and Craig died in the car and it just seemed like all these conf- these like cool little storytelling perks converged <laughs> on this one idea
3: I know Cassie coming back and the entire House of Fears was really effective for all the fans, I mean, we we personally, I'm speaking on Anna's behalf here too. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, we all really enjoyed that aspect of seeing Charlie truly terrified, yeah. and you know, and Zach Quinto just, I mean, he just backed up against the wall in in, yeah. the, in last. It, it was really, and the way she owned him, yeah, just owned him. How cathartic yeah. was that for you guys as, as as writers to to put that on the page and then see it come to, come to life? Because it's really the SmackDown. It's really someone manhandling yeah. him truly for the first time. And it it felt really great for me to watch. So I was curious how you guys as creators. Oh, that's
2: great to hear. Yeah, you know, uh, this was another script written by Tom Brady. It was, and I think the scene is awesome. And it was, you know, uh, kind of from from the beginning, we had a couple of goals with Charlie Makes this season because we knew we were going to lose him at the end of the season. One, first and foremost, is that Zach Quinto is an incredible actor. And so- Oh, God. we just thought to ourselves how can we make this the most compelling dynamic performance from this phenomenal actor as possible you know last season he was great and this season we were like what else can we get him to do (laughs) Um, you know like (laughs) like, let's see him be a human let's learn things that we haven't seen from Manx and how can we elicit those things from him so that we can get like I said just the most compelling dynamic performance from this awesome actor that we are so lucky to have on the show so that was one thing and then ultimately you know the other thing was was again like and you guys Anna I've seen this on the Facebook page like so many people being like Charlie Manx is a good guy uh, (laughs) I love that And, and I was just like are you guys believing the story that he's telling? Um, you know, just because he says these are bad mothers doesn't mean that they are. Just because he says they're, that he's saving children doesn't mean that that's the objective truth whether he (laughs) believes it or not you know what i mean and so i was just like listen you know daniel's mom in the teaser of the very first episode in my book did not deserve to die because she had a guy (laughs) over you know um that doesn't make her a bad mother and so anyway we we really wanted to interrogate charlie's story of himself and who better to do that than his wife <laughs> um, because we knew there was another side to the tale and we wanted to make sure that we told it.
3: I should tell you, Jonathan Langdon and I were breaking down a, a potential type five comedy set for Charlie Manx and <laughs> and, and, and and him, dro- uh, you know, breaking down to screaming about whores from the stage played heavily <laughs> into his comedy routine. It was, yeah. it ended up being most of his bit, so...
2: Yeah, Charlie's, he's got some misogyny issues for sure. Um, Just a couple. Yeah, and, and Jonathan Langdon is amazing and hysterical, like a constant source of joy <laughs> and joking constantly.
3: <laughs> Let, let's uh, let's keep talking about tonight's finale uh, and, and Charlie Banks. You kill him tonight uh spoilers if you haven't watched the episode 12, at minute 12 you kill him oh, okay. <laughs> and, and it's like super 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 early in the show it's it's almost like a continuation of episode 9 you know the the first you know 10 minutes or so kind of continues the action from episode 9 and then we kind of go into a really long epilogue where you tie up loose ends and you set the table for what could come next you know in the season 3 did it always look like that to you? Was that always how the the story was going to play? I mean, it, it sounds like you knew that you were losing Charlie Banks at the end of the season. But just the way the structure of the episode came together. Can, can you tell us a little bit how you guys broke that story in episodes 9 and 10, if they went together, and, and how you just kind of reach that narrative structure.
2: Yeah. Like last year, season one, a little bit, we, we always, you know, nine and 10 last season and nine and 10 this season are serialized. So there's always a little bit of one follows on the other, but for the penultimate of the finale, Uh, We really wanted to keep that momentum up across the episode break. We weren't sure they did not do it this year, but last season um, AMC aired nine and 10 together. Uh, And we weren't sure we knew that that could happen this year, even though it wound up not happening. Nine is really about Christmas land, right? And then 10 is really about, you know, in terms of the Charlie Vick story, it's about Vick and it's about the bridge to me. And those felt story-wise, Uh, like a different, they felt, it felt, the bridge felt like a different chapter, so to speak, than Christmas Land itself. So that's kind of where we, how we decided to make that break. And then, you know, as again, you guys have heard me probably say a lot. To me, Nosferatu, first and foremost, is a character drama. And so I felt like we'd be remiss if we weren't going to spend any time exploring the aftermath of this season uh, on our characters. It's really interesting to think about how does what happened over the course of season two affect Vic, Maggie, Wayne, Lou, Tabitha. So we wanted to make sure that we had room for that. Oh, and also I felt like
1: it, it it also touched on sort of the legacy. So, you know, you've got what's happened to Wayne, you also have what's happened to Millie. Yeah. Um so does does Millie now have sort of buyer's remorse after she's crossed over into the real world i mean is that what we're supposed to be taking away with the fact that she doesn't smash her ornament and return back to a normal girl again
2: yeah i mean i think that millie when she like when she first jumps through in episode nine her first order of business is to make sure that she doesn't disappear into static right She takes care of that first. Um, And then she sees as the ornaments get smashed and the kids come into Christmas land, they don't look happy. They're all crying. They're all kind of returned to being normal kids. And I think it's something that she's wrestling with. And when we see her in the scene with Wayne, when she says... What do you think about being in this world, and Wayne basically says it's kind of crappy. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that that is what cements for her, at least for the time being I, i'm I'm not having it, you know I mean, I think Wayne says something like you know people say they're gonna see the world and explore and do great things, but really, all they do is work all the time and pay bills. That does not mm-hmm. sound like a good time to Millie, and so I think that. That's the moment where she decides, you know what, at least for now, who knows what the future will bring, but she decides this isn't for me. So the episode
3: ends really with the, you know, Millie punching out the window and really setting a a scene where we could see season three is about her trying to rebuild Christmas land and recreate what she's lost now that her father's gone. The other really dangling thread at the end of the episode is Maggie. Uh, So let's talk about her a little bit. This, This episode... You know, the back end of this episode, she really doubles down into using her gift. Yeah. Almost to the point where she almost seems a little intoxicated by it or maybe a little reckless in her enthusiasm to start really using it. Is that a fair take as we watch her descend the elevator at the Providence and, and go into the unknown? I, I, I'm a little worried about her and, and what may wait for her, what may be waiting for her.
2: That's fair. I would also be worried for whoever crosses her path. <laughs> I think as we've kind of seen, she's she can hold her own pretty good. The whole season for Maggie has really been like the way that, I, that we talked about it in the writer's room is Maggie as a character, it's kind of an outdoor cat, we always called her. And then at the beginning of the season, we see that she's actually become an indoor cat. She's a character who's an orphan. She's a character who's been in search of a home. And she finds it with Tabitha. Then Charlie makes turns back up. And I think that that choice is challenged and something awakens in her, which is a big part of who she is. She is a strong creative. At The end of the day, she hasn't been using her powers. And I think that when she starts using them again and finds a way that, that doesn't actually mitigate the cost of the gift because she's still harming herself. But it's a more long-term damage, I guess, than her having life-threatening seizures every time she uses the bag. She thinks, wow, this is great. And when Tabitha is kind of like, I don't know, man, this is dangerous. I think that Maggie has already tasted what it's like to be using her gift and isn't going to go backwards. I think that she comes alive in Christmas land. I think that she gets a taste for her own power and for adventure. And I just think that after that, she can't go back to just check out books in the library. So she pushes forward and wants to see where this is going to bring her.
3: I, I think, I think it's important to give you guys a lot of credit because there's an easy way to fall into a classic TV trope where, Maggie throws that on that ultimatum to Tabitha to accept me for who I am. I'm not gonna not use my tiles again for anyone. And then and then to have her cave on that later on. I, I think that's a pretty expected trope that love will triumph all and she's willing to continue to sacrifice to be with this woman that she truly loves, I think. And so I, I like that she chooses herself and her gift and being true to who she is at the end of yeah. the day. Uh, was that ever a, a wobble point for you guys to, you know, put her back with <laughs> Tabitha and yeah. suppress uh, herself? A hundred
2: percent. If you guys could have heard, I mean, I think we spent the first probably five weeks in the writer's room arguing about that. In fact, we wow. argued about it up until the very, <laughs> very end because we love Maggie and we love Tabitha and we love them together and we want them to be happy. And so there was a lot of deliberation about it. Um, And ultimately we came out where we came out because of what you just said. We just felt like if we're going to set up this choice, it would be a little quick and easy for them to kind of go back on it at least so quickly. I believe that those are two characters that love one another. Maggie understands that if she stays in a relationship under those terms, she really will be doing herself a disservice and she can't do it and then tabitha i think loves maggie and she knows for herself that she can't watch maggie burn herself and get into all this trouble all the time at the same time she doesn't want to be the one who's like you know oppressing her partner she says in that breakup scene in episode eight she says i think you should go be who you are i think it breaks her heart to say it but i think that she knows that's the best way for her to support maggie
1: It just feels real. I mean, it feels real because of how complex it is. And I think that just, points to you know one of the, the, the great things about this series and, and what you guys do is that you know you deliberate over these things and and really really get into these characters so deeply and i think that really comes through because it, it's unexpected it doesn't play out the way that you always see it in 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 relationships that are portrayed and and that's that's refreshing it really is oh, um, that's so nice to hear thanks anna also, what did it mean to you to see the full-blown glory of Christmasland come to life in these last couple episodes?
2: It's funny because it, it came together piece by piece. You know what I mean? Because a lot of it is practical, and a lot of it is VFX. So it was like I, I didn't really know what it was going to look like fully until almost until we had, like, the very last version of the episodes. Every single time, we would get a new shot back from Zoic, who did most of our VFX, not all of them. A company in Massachusetts, I think, Zero, did all of our Ice Maze effects, but Zoic did most of Christmas Land, the rest of Christmas Land. They also did the bridge. Yeah, it was like, you know, Christmas morning every time we got a new shot. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a long, long, long process, you know, because it's a lot of work to make those things happen. But at the end of the day, I was really, really pleased with it. And you know, it's funny, I was tweeting with Toa who directed episodes nine and ten last night. He hasn't seen it, you know, and I was just like, this must be crazy for you. You directed this episode and there's oh, so yeah. much of it. Like he hasn't seen the VFX. So I was really hopeful that he liked them, <laughs> which I think he did. Uh, and excited <laughs> for him to kind of see it all at
0: once.
3: Our last fan question of the night comes from Nick in the Facebook group. If there is a season three, and God, we all hope there is, what are some of the areas of the show that you'd like to explore that you feel that we didn't get to explore enough this season? And yes, that is a totally leading question on his part.
2: <laughs> I mean, I think that, um, you know, again, like one of the things that I that I was most excited about this season was seeing Maggie's rise as kind of, for lack of a better term, an, an action hero in some ways. And yeah. I just think that Jakara really ran with that, was excited to do it. It's a character who, again, like kind of, when we meet her in season one, she's she's young. And when we meet her in season two, she's kind of settled into what she thinks she wants, but there's a whole piece of herself that she's not expressing. And then I think that over the course of season two, she goes deeper and deeper into expressing that part of herself and discovers more, like discovers she likes battling demons in Christmas land. Um, <laughs> and so I think that I'm excited to see what kinds of adventures Maggie gets up to. I'm very excited to see what kinds of adventures Millie gets up to. Uh, I think it's an open question as to, you know, how deeply affected by his brief time in Christmas land is Wayne. And so, yeah, I'm interested in exploring, you know, Wayne at the end of episode nine, before Vic drags him back home, says, if you take me from here, I will hate you for the rest of my life. I will never forgive you. And Vic says, I don't care. And, you know, as we see in episode 10, Wayne has been affected by Christmas Land in an ongoing way. I think that's going to be a challenge for Vic to, how do you parent that kid? It'll be interesting to see how that little conversation between them at the end of episode 9 plays forward into the future. I
3: really loved the Wayne missing Christmas Land in this episode because in the book, it's so... Unnerving, how he's sitting with Lou, and then with Tabitha later, and and he's hearing Christmas land in his head. He's hearing the kids calling to him in his head, <laughs> and and I always found it so unnerving, and so getting to see it play out, and and him him and Millie laying side by side, looking up at the stars, and, and just yeah, kind of, I, kind, yeah, I love being, that scene. Yeah, just being drawn to it over and over again. It it really opens the door for so much potential in a season three, four, five, and six. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah you guys have really set a great stage for, for more.
2: <laughs> thanks, guys. Well, um, hopefully AMC agrees with you. Um, <laughs> and hopefully we'll, we'll get to keep doing it.
1: Well, since we've already asked you what your inscape in life would be, another question we like to ask our guests on Strong Creatives Welcome is, do you have a single favorite experience that stands out? while making the show?
2: Wow. Um, There have been so many amazing ones. I I guess, you know, one of the things that really stands out to me that you may have heard me talk about on other interviews, but it was, it made such an impression was when I watched the director's cut of episode five. And Mm -hmm. I watched the final act of that episode where there was a car chase between an antique car and an antique motorcycle. And you could see both of our leads on the car and the motorcycle. We've never done that before in the show. We've never seen Vic riding her motorcycle before in the show. That's the first time that you've ever seen it because it's always her stunt double so there's like a high speed chase through the trees uh with these vehicles with our cast uh and then she gets blown by that SUV I was stunned by it I wasn't there when we shot it and I'm so kind of glad that I wasn't because I got to see it in a way that was really exciting and I remember watching it with Nina Jack who is our co-ep who is on set all the time. Um, it is amazing. She was there. Hi, it. I remember we were <laughs> watching it together and she was like pointing out little things that we were going to have to adjust in the cut. And can we just fix that? And, and, and I was just staring at it blankly. And she was like, are you okay? And I was like, I <laughs> just can't believe you guys did all that. That may have been a, one of the high points for sure.
3: If you could have, this is another become another favorite question of ours on the show. If you could have any of the strong creative powers that we've seen the characters exhibit in the story, whether it's the hourglass man's power or Vic's or Maggie's, uh, which would you choose and what would you do with it?
2: Oh, well, that's a good, like it- I, I would say the hourglass man's power because that's pretty cool. Except I really don't <laughs> like the cost of that power. I would hate to lose my memories and I, I don't wanna have to murder somebody every time to, to not lose them. Um <laughs> you know, I think you have to weigh the power with the cost a little bit. So I guess having a scrabble bag that has the answers to the universe is uh is pretty powerful. Yeah, I guess I guess I would I guess I'd take Maggie's Scrabble bag.
1: <laughs> what would you ask
3: it? Oh, Ooh.
2: will there be a season three of Nosferatu?
3: Hell yes, yeah! <laughs> yes. I don't know if that's worth a grand mal seizure, but it's, it's, if anything is, I that may that may be burn,
2: it. Think. <laughs> <laughs>
3: One seizure. Yeah. I mean, Maggie always got up for me, so
2: <laughs> I'd touch a cigarette to my arm to know the answer to that question. If the answer was yes. <laughs>
3: I love that. I love that Jamie willing to go the extra mile to the to the cigarette burns. <laughs>
1: um, can you tell us someone that you're a fan
2: of yourself? I have been watching. Actually, last night I watched Lovecraft Country. Yes. Uh, have you guys seen it yet? Yes. I've yeah, we're we're I, we're episode. actually covering
3: we're actually covering a podcast for it over here at Apocalypse House. So I yeah, yeah, we're am... into it.
2: And we have Very a group for excited it. excited <laughs> to see what happens next. Yes. yes. Um I thought it was awesome. amazing. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was beautifully done. And I'm jazzed to see where they go next with that.
3: Awesome. Uh, Jamie, we've kept you here for a super long time. And I really want to thank you not just for talking to us here and talking to us at the season premiere and talking to us, you know, in season one all the time since you joined us and and the interaction you do with the fans on Twitter and Facebook. Um mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, so thank you uh but
1: Uh,
2: thank you for having me it is my pleasure i always like talking about the show and to the fans yeah any anything i can do
3: what's an honor what are you doing now while you're waiting for season three new uh, season three news are you working on any new projects that people should be looking out for is there is there anything jamie coming up that we should keep an eye on
2: do you mean aside from clearing my backyard of rats Yes, Um, other other
3: than the rat aside, uh, your your Pied Piper mission.
2: Um, there's a couple of things here and there that I'm working on, but I don't know. I'm I'm mostly just hopeful for a season three of Nosferatu.
3: Well, I hope you will come back and talk to us one way or another. Uh, we can we can get the band back together yeah. and uh, have you yes. on for a special issue, a special edition of Strong Creative's. Welcome to talk about it. That's uh, right. That
2: would be amazing.
3: Uh, also, I'm going to hold you to that. I'm putting it on my 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 Strong Creative calendar. So <laughs> okay,
2: great, 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 great. Thank you again for everything, and hopefully, I'll see you in season three. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Jamie, thank you so <laughs> thank you so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.
2: Okay bless you bye guys
3: bye. bye. all right guys we're back thank you again to jamie o'brien for being so generous with her time i mean we really talked to her yeah. for a long time this one wow. uh at the beginning of the season the amc was on the line at the beginning of the season <laughs> so we only we only got her for 20 30 minutes but this yeah. time she was really open with us and uh, it was out. great she hung out. It was just a good conversation. We just kind of chilled along.
1: Thanks, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you.
3: <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you, Jamie. Not only for the interview, but thank you for for bringing this show to life for us. Oh my god! Um, yes. Personally, NOS was a show I latched onto really early last year. You know, I did. You know, I was doing six thousand word recaps over at Pop Culture Review. It just really resonated with me. I loved the heart. I loved the story it was telling on top of the horror elements. Mm -hmm. I mean, little fact, I'm actually not a huge horror fan as far as the genre goes. Oh, wow. I like psychological horror. Right. But for me, the best horror is horror plus. And this show had all of the plus that I could ever look for. That's what really made it sing for me. It was the story it was telling with the backdrop of horror. A truly different kind of vampire story. Oh, my God the promotion yeah. materials. So I, I have really enjoyed the, the journey when we started pod clubhouse back in January, one of the first shows I knew I wanted to cover was to take my written reviews and bring it to the podcast form. So, Even though I had to wait months and months and months for the show to come on the air, this was one of the first things I put on the old whiteboard of shows I knew I would want to cover.
1: You asked me a long time ago. Mm -hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, it wasn't too long after season one, maybe, that we talked about it, wasn't it? Or – was it early? Uh, no, no,
3: it was not. Yeah, no, no. It was before. I, I, I think I talked to you before we even formally launched Pod Clubhouse That's about doing this. Yeah. It's, yeah. Time, um, so,
0: yeah. yeah. it's been a long time,
2: so. Yeah, it's been a long time,
3: because I just wanted to talk about it with someone who was as as much in love with it, if not more, than even I was. And and Anna, <laughs> I want to thank you for being a great partner during this season. Oh, and, and you too. And I hope we get to come back for season three and I'd talk some more. i
1: love that, definitely, because, you know, then we'll also have to do a season one Rewind And we can get some people talk about some of the stuff that was done in season one. Um, Yes. The other thing is, you know, the community that formed around this show is just super special to me. Look, I I just wanted to actually thank the entire community, you know, across all social media, but especially the Nasratu fans Facebook group. I built it almost two years ago exactly. I think it was September 2018. Yeah, because I knew the story and I knew – that the talent behind it was going to was going to be good i just had a feeling and i've been doing you know online fandoms for 20 some years so i've been doing this a long time and without a doubt or hesitation this is absolutely the best fandom i've ever been a part of we get so much great feedback too about the group and the fandom from the cast and the crew uh, and even AMC itself. So I I can't really take all the credit though. I have an amazing, incredible team of admins who have worked really hard for the past two years to help foster this positive, energetic atmosphere that we're kind of known for now. And so I just, I just feel like I want to thank each each one of you guys, um, you know Ryan, my group brother and partner in crime, Larice who also runs our Twitter on Sunday nights and just kicks ass the whole time, Chance and Different Mike, who might. Be bigger Nosferatu fans than I am. I'm not sure. We might have to, like, wrestle over it or or, or cage match or something. Jamie, our very own librarian. Melissa and Tony and Gwen are sisters who have been across several fandoms with me over the years. You guys are my family, and the very best part of this experience has been getting to know everybody and hang out with everybody over the past couple years. And I also need to thank Carrie who's on the crew who brought me to the set in the first place i'm just really blessed for having all of you people in my life now no matter what happens with the show this is what stays is the bonds that you make so really thank you to everybody
3: i just on a personal note i want to thank you anna uh on behalf of everyone who's listening and who's in the facebook groups who whether or not they uh, realize it and appreciate it the the respectful atmosphere the great discussions the great posts that exist in all of your fandom run Facebook groups gets to enjoy is because you are this mama bear of a fandom administrator. And oh. I don't know that enough things can be given to you for creating. It's hard to find civility on the internet. It yeah. is even more difficult to find it in social media, especially Facebook. Exactly. I am part, I've been in so many toxic Facebook groups that I, <laughs> I I'm like, peace out bitches. And I leave immediately because it's just not a place that you want to be and put your energy.
1: A wall of negativity. Who wants? That? I
3: thank the creator the day that I wandered into one of your Facebook groups because it, it not only launched our friendship, you know, built really on the magicians, honestly, but you know, through evil, through this show, uh, it, it was, it was a true stroke of luck and just an absolute blessing to kind of have you come into my life and allow us to make this show and, and all the great things that we're going to do. So
1: back at you, man, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this. Um, yeah, I, I look forward to more. It's it's amazing. Thank you.
3: <laughs> and to you guys listening, thank you for listening and yes. tuning in every week to Strong Creative's Welcome. This continues to be just one of the, you know, most listened to podcasts in the country. Every episode we drop, you guys are so great, you go out there like a real strong creative Ugh. army and, yeah. and just pump us up the charts. Uh, you know, please continue to listen to the show, tell your friends about the show, tell your friends about Nosferatu, you know, the season three yes. Uh, announcement has not been made yet so all of your renewal campaigns need to be done you need to be working super hard anna what are the hashtags people should be using
1: we want hashtag renew and hashtag nosferatu s3 for season three um just no longer need
3: we no longer need hashtag Shoes for Wayne uh, uh, 2 <laughs> be, because sho- Shoes got to Wayne 2. Yes. So uh, we can end that hashtag. But yes. yes, support the show, write to AMC, tell them that we need a season three so and and I can keep making a podcast. You know, yeah. honestly, it's all about us at the end of the day. We exactly. need to do this. Yeah. So help us, please. <laughs> For the cost of a cup of coffee, you can sponsor an orphan in Africa and help us make a podcast. So keep doing it, guys.
1: Thank you, guys.
3: Don't forget to remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Strong Creatives. Welcome, the Nosferatu podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave us a five-star rating. Five stars, five stars, five stars. Please. It makes a big difference. It yes. makes Apple like us. It makes Apple pay attention yes. to us. It helps them bump the podcast and and, and, more and advertise find
1: us. It. Yeah. And
3: more people will find us and and the greater the army grows. Let's build the strong creative army all together, guys, okay? Love it. So for the last time this season, thanks for listening. Strong Creatives Welcome, the Nosheratu podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios.
0: For more information, please visit us online at podclubhouse.com.